Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the Buttonwood columnist at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week... We talked to Nobel Prize winning economist Jean Tirole. Sound bites is not what economists are good at. <laughs> and we, we actually need to explain that people should be beware of simple messages. And where in the world do they drive right hand cars on the right side of the road? The problem is that, of course, uh, Japan drives on the left, uh, whereas Myanmar people drive on the right. And so almost all the cars that people have imported are designed for Japanese roads. But first, the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England meets on Thursday, November the 2nd to decide whether to raise interest rates by a quarter of a point to 0.5%. This would mark the first tightening of monetary policy for a decade. Inflation in Britain is at its highest level in five years, and the governor of the Bank of England said recently that it had further to climb. Against the uncertainty of Brexit negotiations, should the MPC members vote for a rate rise or hold off? until things are clearer early next year. Callum Williams is our Britain economics correspondent. Callum, what do we think? Well, as you say, inflation really uh, recently hit uh, 3%, which is very high by British standards, at least, or recent British standards. And this really has kind of galvanised uh, the MPC to, to start seriously considering raising interest rates, as you say, for the first time in about a decade. So even some of the more sort of dovish members of the Monetary Policy Committee have been giving speeches and that sort of thing and writing articles and that sort of thing, uh, taking people by surprise and saying, you know, we need to we need to get on and, and, and do this. It's a very finely balanced argument. It certainly appears that there are some members of the MPC who will not vote for uh, for, for an increase on the on the second. But it's it seems fairly certain that it's going to happen. Is this all to do with credibility? The Bank of England did let inflation go up to 5% in the middle of um, this crisis, and it didn't raise rates at any point. So if you keep letting inflation go above target, does that mean that eventually consumers will start to doubt that the target really applies? I think that's part of it. I think also you have to bear in mind that in June 2016, sort of almost immediately after the Brexit vote, the Bank of England went ahead and cut interest rates from 0.5 to 0.25 because they had expected at that point that the economy was going to slow down quite sharply, possibly fall into into recession quite quickly. In the end, that that didn't really happen at all. And so the bank is, in a sense, uh, trying to signal that it's sort of undoing the emergency help that it uh, did in, in, in light of the Brexit vote last year. But do we think it should really do this or would it be safer to wait? Well, I, our, our judgment is uh, for now it should, it should actually wait. So on the, on the question of inflation, it, although it is above target and has been for a, quite a few months now, it's, it's really almost entirely generated by, by the fall in sterling, which is linked to the, to the Brexit vote. And so what that means is that it's, it's, it, it will come down of its own accord, no matter what the Bank of England does uh, within a few months. If you then sort of try to strip out the effects of, of, of sterling's depreciation, if you look at the you know, inflation that's generated domestically, that is uh, still fairly weak. So 
Unemployment's very low. Employment is very high. Uh, the labour market looks pretty tight. Yet, wage growth is still at around 2% a year mark, which by historical standards is extremely weak. So it's hard to make the case, I think, that the UK economy is overheating and requires higher borrowing costs. And the UK economy is a bit different to the US economy, isn't it, in terms of the sensitivity to interest rates? Yes, exactly. And that's what we're going to be um, writing about this week. So, for instance, if you look at mortgages, which are the largest component of household debt in almost every country, roughly nine in 10 American mortgages are fixed rate, often for upwards of 30 years. So they're they're not really sensitive to changes in, in, in what the Federal Reserve does at all. By contrast, roughly half of the outstanding mortgages in the UK are variable rate, which means that they will adjust pretty much immediately to to any increases in bank rate. And then even those mortgages that are fixed, the most popular fixed rate mortgages tend to be two or five years. So really, it's only a kind of temporary reprieve from from high rates. And this means that the UK economy as a whole is is perhaps more sensitive to rises in rates than, than, than others. Callum, thank you very much. Should the Bank of England raise rates next week? Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Also, thank you to our listener who got in touch after our discussion about NAFTA negotiations. He points out the fear with which Canadians are watching Trump's Twitter stream. He says the US's punitive damages on softwood lumber and Bombardier aircraft, combined with the frankly ridiculous proposals for NAFTA, suggest to Canadians that Trump is looking for an excuse to rip up NAFTA rather than try to improve it. Next, from London's battle with Uber to retailers' race against Amazon and Fox's takeover bid for Sky, the issue of how to deal with companies operating in markets where competition is restricted or absent is never far from the front pages. Jean Tirole won a Nobel Prize for Economics in 2014 for helping change the way we think about the regulation of industries with a few powerful firms. His new book is called Economics for the Common Good. Our economics correspondent Samaya Keynes talked to him about competition in the digital economy. She started by asking him if sometimes people have unreasonable expectations of economists. Yes, I do. I think the expectations uh, concerning forecasts, for example, I think we are not very good at forecasting for various reasons, including it's a social science. So there are you know, self-fulfilling phenomena, as we say, like bank runs or currency runs, behavioral patterns, and sometimes we miss the data that are needed to predict correctly. So I think in terms of forecasting, we are not that good. And many people expect us actually to predict well. I think we are much better actually at uh, designing policies which are going to prevent uh, you know, banking crisis and the like. So we are much better at, at designing policies than at uh, predicting. So how does an economist think about the world differently to your average Joe? Well, I think what we can do is first to basically make sure that the cognitive biases that we all suffer from are eliminated in some way. So we have to explain the pitfalls of our reasoning. So, for example, um, we have motivated beliefs. We want to see, you know, we want to believe what we want to believe. And that has a number of implications. Uh, An example, for example, is green growth. Uh, You know, we all want to believe that uh, being green is not going to cost anything. But of course, if it were true, why didn't we do it before? You know, we should be green already now. And we are not. 
So we have to accept the fact that uh, you know, we have to actually pay for having a green planet, which I want to have, of course, like everybody else. That's one of uh, among many examples. You know, we, we are bearers of bad news in a sense. And same thing when we say we need incentives. You know, in a sense, we are saying you know, people are not as nice as we would like them to be. In Britain, the Labour Party uh, seems pretty keen on bringing several industries back into public ownership. And one of the arguments against that is that, you know, it would lower the amount of competition. How can we think through when it is a good idea to privatise or nationalise public industries? Well, a couple of remarks on that. The first is I think that competition is actually more important than the ownership structure. But this being said, I still think that... uh, a public ownership is not very good because, of course, you're under political influence. So you, your governments usually are very weak vis-à-vis the lobbies. And uh, privatization for that reason is usually better. At the same time, you can have temporary nationalization. So, for example, when the banking sector is bankrupt, for example, and it, you find it very hard to find uh, buyers for the banks which are bankrupts, then it's good to do, you know, for a couple of years to have nationalization of those banks and then you prioritize them, you know, once the market has returned to normal. So I think the role of the state has changed quite a lot. The role of the state nowadays is no longer to supply jobs or to run firms because that state, with some exception, is not very good at doing that. The state has to be a strong state a kind of referee who is going to organize public life and regulate when needed. You know, there are many market failures, and you do need regulation, and you do need a strong state which is independent from the lobbies and from, often from political power for the same reason. Should we be worried about competition in the digital economy as, as the economy is changing? Yes, I think we should be worried about compet- competition in the digital economy because we have more and more kind of monopolies. And to some extent, it's normal that you have, you know, monopolies or tight oligopolies because you have large return to scale. So it's very, you have a big cost of investment and you have especially what what we call network externalities. So I want to be on Facebook because you are on Facebook. Or it could be more indirect because, you know, we may want to use the same system because this system has a lot of apps uh, attached to it. So we are going to get a lot of monopolies and, uh, and, and oligopolies, what we call now superstar firms. And you know that uh, the top five uh, market caps in the world are actually uh, two-sided markets, two-sided platforms, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, and so on. So actually, we have this. But this being said, we need to have uh, some competition policy so as to make sure that they don't abuse their monopoly power. Is there a problem in that good economics is context-specific, it's complicated, it's sometimes not very easy to communicate in clear messages? How can economists fight simple messages given the very very sensible, measured uh, policy recommendations that they have? Yeah, that's part of the difficulty, actually. Uh, Sound bites is not what economists are good at. (laughs) And we... We actually need to explain that people should be beware of simple messages. Uh, as you say, it's going to be context-specific. We have to explain all those things. And you know, in the end, um, it's also needed that uh, people rely on, on, on experts, even so that's not very popular. 
In France, just before the first round of the presidential election, uh, we published actually uh, an op-ed, a letter from 25 Nobel laureates in economics and trying to explain that the populist movements, including the National Front, which was actually very strong at the time, were proposing policies which would be no good for France. It had a little impact. Now, how much impact it had, it's hard to say. You know, and part of the thing is that uh, the people who are frustrated for, you know, for, you know, by globalization, by the rise in, in inequality, by unemployment or or geeks, the gig economy, which I understand, by the way, I really understand that, but uh, they no, don't necessarily read the newspapers uh, like The Economist, and it's pretty hard, or they don't listen to the main media, media necessarily. Um, it's pretty hard to reach them, and that's one of the difficulties we face. And the populists are actually very good at, you know, with slogans to, to reach them, so we have to we have to take that into account, but you need a good education in the end, and you need to convince people you know, down this chain of knowledge <laughs> that economics is actually working for the common good if it's used properly. Jean, thank you very much. Sumaya, thanks so much. That was Jean Tirol talking to Sumaya Keynes. Finally. In Myanmar, the government has just introduced a rule that all imported cars from next year must be left-hand drive. What's this all about? Simon Cox is our emerging markets editor. He's on the line from Hong Kong and has just returned from Myanmar. So, Simon, why have they made this rule change? Well, it's, it's a sensible change. So I, I was visiting uh, Myanmar for, for the first time, I have to confess, and uh, it took me a while to realise why some of the drives were so um, bracing, let me put it that way. And uh, the reason is if you take the passenger seat in a typical Myanmar taxi, um, you will be asked whether um, it's safe to overtake or not, uh, especially on some of the narrower roads when you're stuck behind uh, slow-moving lorries and you know rickshaws and kids are coming in the opposite direction. Uh, the reason is that uh, Myanmar is basically a used car market. Almost all the, the cars that people drive um, are used, and most of them, a vast majority, are imported from Japan. Um, that's fine. The Japanese cars are, are reliable. They seem to stand up to the pressures of, of driving around Myanmar's imperfect roads pretty well, and they're very popular. Um, the problem is that, of course, uh, Japan drives on the left, uh, whereas Myanmar people drive on the right. And so almost all the cars that people have imported are designed for Japanese roads, their right-hand drive. So it, it makes driving around Myanmar you know, uniquely dangerous. Um, so for a while, they've been trying to discourage this, and there have been a number of uh, attempts to bring in rules, uh, steadily tightening uh, restrictions on uh, used car imports. And uh, finally, they seem to have introduced quite a draconian rule, which says that you know, essentially uh, all imports will have to be pretty recent models uh, and they'll have to be suitable for, for driving in Myanmar, that is, left-hand drive. What about existing cars, the ones that are currently right-hand drive? Uh, they're okay, so they're grandfathered in. You can also, or at least under one version of the rules, if you could show that you were scrapping a really old car, they would let you buy a slightly old car. But uh, yes, so the existing stock will, will remain uh, terrorizing uh, pedestrians for a little while longer. And what is the road safety level of uh, Myanmar like relative to the rest of Asia? So I looked at the figures and they have the worst accident rate per vehicle uh, in Southeast Asia in the, the 10 countries that belong to the ASEAN uh, trade bloc. 
Um, I don't know whether that's because uh, driving is newer in Myanmar or because of this uh, peculiarity of this, the side of the road they drive on and the side that the steering wheel is on. Um, but one other peculiarity of Yangon is that uh, in, in Yangon, the, biz, the biggest city in Myanmar, they've actually banned motorcycles. So uh, if people want to drive at all, they have to buy cars. And so one of the protests that's arisen in response to this new rule is that it will raise the cost of cars. It'll also make it slightly easier for local manufacturers to compete with imports. That might be good for, for jobs, but possibly bad for consumers. Well, Simon, I'm very glad you made it out of there alive. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I'm Philip Coggan. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.